And then let's uh, turn together to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5. Romans 5, and I'm going to read from verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood... How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Last week, those of us who were here were looking at the section before that, um, particularly verse 8, God demonstrates his love. And we are seeing that there is no legitimate reason for ever doubting that God loves us because God has demonstrated it convincingly once and for all in what he did for us in giving his son to die in our place so that we could be forgiven. There is the demonstration of God's love. And we saw that the demonstration is something that you look at carefully. You want to note every point. That's why something is being demonstrated. And God has set out before us to convince us for all time. He loves us. And how do we know that? Christ died for us. We are looking then at how God has stupendously demonstrated for all time his love. And then verse 9 follows on. Actually, uh, it should have the little word therefore there. Uh, The translators of the NIV thought the word since was good enough. But uh, it's another therefore. Remember, at the start of the chapter, we saw how Paul is concerned to set out truth and then say, well, so what? What does that lead to? And he's arguing his case here in verse 1, therefore, now in verse 9, another therefore, and down in verse 12, yet another one. What we believe, our faith, is fed by truth. We need to get hold of the truth and say, therefore this, therefore that. And we'll see changes that are going to take place in our life, in our understanding or whatever, because of truths about God. So what's he saying in these verses that we just read, verses 9 through to 11. It's a passage that has got a certain pattern to it. It moves from the difficult to the easier. From the greater, the the, the greater, as it were, includes the lesser, or moving from the unlikely to the certain. Just as if we were to say, In the unlikely event, move from the unlikely to the certain. In the unlikely event of the sun shining all over Sheffield, then we can be certain it will shine in Encliffe Park. If it's shining all over Sheffield, it will certainly shine there. Unlikely, but they go, actually it is shining out there. But it doesn't happen often, so if you want to just turn and look. So this passage moves from the unlikely to the certain. He he points out difficult things that have happened. Well, then the easier is certain to happen. So let's look, first of all, at some of the, as it were, the unlikely things or the difficult things that he refers to. First of all, he says in verse 9, since we have been justified by his blood. That's the first 
incredible, unlikely, difficult thing, as it were, that God has done that for us, justified by his blood. In verse 1, he said, since we have been justified through faith. Now he's moved on to express the same truth in a slightly different way. There it was justified through faith. Now he says justified through his blood. Between verses 1 and 9, he has spoken about Christ dying for the ungodly. Jesus died in our place, the Son of God taking our place shedding his blood, and the word blood speaks of cost, it speaks of sacrifice, it speaks of a substitute in our place. God has done that. It's contrary to all that we would expect, all that would seem reasonable. And that's why he puts it in that way. That's the difficult thing. If that has happened, which it has, we don't deserve to be justified. Christ didn't deserve to be crucified. Both have happened. Christ, the Son of God, crucified so that we, rebels against God, should be justified. It's unbelievable, but it's true. It's unlikely. Who would ever have expected that to happen? But it's God demonstrating his love for us. The unlikely, the stupendous, the amazing, that has happened. The second unlikely or difficult thing that he refers to is in verse 10. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. It's the same truth, but being expressed in a different way and drawing attention to different things. We were God's enemies. Enemies of God due to our total indifference to him and his disgust at our condition, our sin our pollution, and we just didn't care. That was where we were at. Enemies of God, we were hostile towards God. Paul uses that word in chapter 8 and uh, verse 6. So verse 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Hostile to God, indifferent to him, apathetic, but nonetheless, his enemies, we didn't want to know. We didn't want him to tell us what to do. We didn't want him to rule in our lives because we were self-sufficient and full of self-esteem and all of those things that said, God, got no time for you. He equally angry with sin because it is disgusting. It is horrible. And he can't even look at sin. So there was enmity from both sides. And it says, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. I don't know if you've ever been involved in a conflict with someone. And if you have been, you know how difficult it is to resolve it. You know, you see these desperately sad stories in the press from time to time of law cases, lawsuits between neighbors, often over a boundary. There was one just recently in the press that went, I think, to the high court, cost tens of thousands of pounds, and it was because one neighbor painted the fence, and the other neighbor said, but it's our fence, you had no right to to paint it. And so one could say, someone took offense, but I wouldn't say that, (laughs) because that would be pathetic. But that argument goes through the courts, Terry liked that one. You can see he's smiling. (laughs) That's his kind of... Anyway, (laughs) it went to the high courts 
and tens of thousands of pounds paid to bring a resolution. It's often you get another dispute about the height of a hedge. Or you think, why didn't they just talk about it? Why didn't they just resolve it? But if it, it's difficult between neighbours, then how about between nations? How about between people groups within a nation? These things go on for generations. Well, we were God's enemies. How could that be resolved? Just imagine in one of these disputes between neighbours about a boundary. Imagine if the neighbour who is in the right, in other words, the one who is being wronged, said to the one wronging them, well, I will pay all the legal fees. I think that's amazing. Why should they do that? Of course, it would still leave a problem, a dispute about well, who actually does own this boundary. What God has done is he's paid the price and then brought about a change in us where we repent and we agree with him that he is right. God has reconciled us to him. We were God's enemies. We disagreed with God. We disputed with God. And he says, okay, I'll pay the cost. I'll pay the price. And what is the price? The death of his son, bearing God's anger against our sin on our behalf, so that through faith in that, we're changed and we agree with God. It's amazing. There's no reason why he should do that. It's beyond any expectation. It's the difficult thing. It's the unlikely thing, the greater thing. We were God's enemies, reconciled to him, through the death of his son. It's freely given to us, and hence the expression in verse 11, we have now received reconciliation. God just gives us that. We don't earn it. We contribute nothing to it. He has done it. Now, both of those things, justified and reconciled, these are things that have happened. These have been given. We are justified, we are reconciled, and God has done it. Now, that's the the difficult thing. Then Paul moves from that to the, the easier outcome, the easier thing that therefore follows, that is included in that. So, let's look at that. The principle he applies here between the greater thing and the lesser thing is this principle of how much more. He says, since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved and so on? If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, how much more having been reconciled? He loves that expression. He uses it elsewhere in this chapter in verse 15. He says, if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift of that that came by that grace overflow? And in verse 17, death reigned through one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and so on reign in life? He loves that comparing one thing with the other and and showing the way God does things is not a straight comparison. It's not a straight match. There's this principle of how much more, this lavishness of what God does. If he's done the greater thing, then how much more will he do the lesser thing? If the difficult thing is stupendous and mind-blowing, then the thing that follows from it will be even more so. Not less than, but more. 
the outcome. Now we're looking at two amazing miracles. Justified by his blood. Reconciled enemies by the death of his son. That's amazing. The outcome is even more amazing. That's what Paul is conveying here. So what is this amazing outcome? Well, both of these things are looking into the future. He looks into the past, what has happened, and he looks into the future, what will certainly happen. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Actually, it says, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath? It doesn't have the word God there, but the translators put that in so we know what it's talking about. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath through him? Now, what's he talking about? Well, he's already referred to that back in chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse 5, where he says, you're storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. He's talking about the end of time when Jesus has come back, when life as it currently is, is over and everyone stands before God. That is a day when for those who have never repented of their sin, who are not justified, then they will experience what holiness is all about. And what holiness will mean will be holy, fearsome, wrath against sin. The wrath. So, we, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath through him? Now, that's not just something that Paul speaks about. It's also elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, for example. Chapter 6, a terrible description. Revelation chapter 6, verse Verses 15 and on, it says, The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand the great day of God's wrath. And just the face of a holy God is unbearable and intolerable. And it would be better to be smothered in a rockfall than to see the face of a holy God when you are a sinner. You, know, you sometimes hear people, foolish people, when something has disappointed them, saying, I'm very angry with God. I tell you, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have some questions. You think, you ignorant and poor, arrogant person. When we see the face of God, people fall flat. You don't argue with God as if I know best than God. You haven't come up to my expectations. Who do we think we are? He's God. And to see his face is awesome. And the only way we can... Face that day without fear is through this. We have been justified by his blood. How much more then shall we be saved from the wrath through him? No fears for that day if you're in Christ. Justified. Justify means acquitted. Where, where 
the, the judge says, you're free to go. Not guilty. Our guilt transferred to Jesus. He bears the punishment. We are justified. Yes, the day of wrath will certainly come. But we're saved from it. How much more? There is no doubt about it. Our justification means we have absolute, rock-solid assurance of eternal life. There's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear about, or maybe we won't be good enough. No, of course we're not good enough. Jesus is. And his righteousness covers us totally. It's not, there's no ifs or maybe. It's how much more. The only way to face that certain day is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ now, that he is my savior. His perfect righteousness covers my sin. His death deals with my punishment and I am forgiven and I can face that day with absolute confidence. If the one happened, then how much more will the other? We're saved from, from the wrath through him. Total assurance for that future day. And then it goes on, if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It's as if Paul is saying, just look what his death did. Then what will his life do? Because he didn't stay dead, he rose again, as we have just been singing on the third day. He rose again. If his death has achieved our forgiveness, our punishment taken away and suffered by him, then what does his life do? We will be saved. People sometimes will ask the question, maybe it's, we wouldn't express it very often in that, that way, but people will sometimes uh, accost you, they've never met you before, and they're a Christian, they'll say to you, have you been saved? To which, if you are a Christian, the answer is yes. But actually, the more accurate answer is partly. Now, some Christian who uh, asks you that question is not going to be satisfied with that answer, but if they were biblically literate, they would be. Because we're partly saved, we're fully saved when we're in glory. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And Paul is looking at the future here, Having been reconciled, we will be saved. He's looking at the end time again, dealing with this matter of absolute assurance that we are in Christ, in his life. He is alive forever. He will never die and we will be saved in him. His death changed our relationship with God to one of reconciliation. His life changes our relationship with God to what? Well, something that's how much more? If through the death of his son we were reconciled, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved? There's something more glorious than even having been reconciled that Paul is looking at here. We are in Christ. Remember what Jesus said? It's in John chapter 10 and verse 10. John 10 and verse 10, when he's speaking about himself as the good shepherd, he says he's contrasting himself with the shepherd of the sheep and a thief who comes. And he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it 
to the full. That's a how much more, not just life, but to the full. How much more shall we be saved through his life? Look what God did for us when we were outside Christ. Then what's he going to do for us now we are in Christ? What will he do for us now? Well, there's this how much more factor that is pointing into the future. We will be wonderfully, abundantly saved. You might say, well, I'd be satisfied to just be saved. No, but it's how much more than that. How much more will we be saved? So Paul here looks at what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future. But he's not jumping over the present because his whole point here is to affect our lives now. Our life now is affected by what happened in the past and what will happen in the future. Well, how is it affected now? Now, when he starts this letter, if you can remember all those months back to when we started looking at it, he says in verse 11 of chapter 1, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That was his objective in writing this letter, and it's why he wants to see them, to make you strong. So how do these two things make us strong? What happened in the past and what will happen in the future? Well, first of of all, of course, it's talking here about relationship with God. We've been justified and we're reconciled. Justified means that in our relationship with God, there's no sense of guilt anymore. We're justified. We can come before God, whatever's happened in the past week, the past month, or our past life, we can come before God with a totally clear conscience. It's wonderful. We've got relationship with him. No guilt, and we're reconciled. There's no distance, no gap between us and God. No guilt, no gap. We're as clear with Him as it's possible to be, and as close to Him as it's possible to be. Whatever our feelings tell us, they're the facts. Relationship with God. Now, Paul is stressing that because it needs to be stressed. Because the devil, of course, hasn't gone away, and the Bible calls him the accuser of the brothers. And he accuses day and night. And he doesn't want you to believe you've got a clear conscience. He doesn't want you to believe that, there's, that you're reconciled with God. He wants you to believe that you are a miserable failure. He wants you to believe that God is cross with you, disappointed in you, and that God is unlikely in blessing people to bless you. He's unlikely in using people to use you. That's what the accuser will say. We need to understand we have been justified. We will be saved. We have been reconciled. We're we're saved from wrath. We're in Christ. There is no gap. There is no guilt. We need to see it. That changes everything. We can start enjoying relationship with God instead of feeling guilty. We can start enjoying praying without thinking he's not listening. The gap between me and God is too great. 
He maybe listens to church leaders, but he doesn't listen to me. Or I may feel as a church leader, he may be listens to people with international... You know, we can always think, not me, not me. No, we've got relationship. We need to see it. We've been justified. We've been reconciled. And there's a how much more factor about the outcome. There's relationship. But he's also talking here about resurrection life. In verse 10... When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death, the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved? It says, through his life. Now, I don't know why it translates it like that, because what it actually says is, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved in his life? Now, that's an important point, because Paul is going to go on in chapter 6, particularly, to speak about being in Christ. He speaks about it also in the remainder of this chapter. We're saved in his life. His life is the result of, on the third day, he rose again. It's resurrection life. He was dead, and behold, he's alive. And that life is a triumph over death. That life is a sheer impossibility that has happened. In the grave, dead. And bursting out of the grave in life. That can't happen, but it happened. And we're in his life. We have been reconciled, and how much more shall we be saved in his life? Jesus defeated death powerfully, and we're in that life. Paul stresses it here, he stresses it even more when he writes to the Ephesians. In fact, he stresses it pretty well to everyone he writes. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, he's saying, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And what's he praying? He says, I want you to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, that's an important thing to know. God's incomparably, notice the way he's trying to express this, incomparably great power for us. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So, resurrection power, he says, I want you to know this power that is for us. And that, this, is the, this is the power exerted when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You kind of get the sense Paul is kind of enthusiastic about this. And he's saying the power that brought Jesus out of death is the power that's available for us. Why? Because we're in his life. Just imagine the total unbeliever. They look at the resurrection and they say, impossible. I do not believe that a dead man, particularly a man who has been crucified who has expired on the cross and furthermore had a spear driven into him, then bound up in grave clothes, put in a grave. I do not believe that a man could come out of that unbelief. Hopefully, most of us 
have moved forward from that. We take a step forward and we say, I do believe. I believe that Jesus rose again. And we sing songs about it and we admire it and we praise God for it. That's wonderful. What Paul is talking about is a further step forward where we're in the resurrection. Not just believing it, but we're in the resurrection life of Christ. He rose again and we're in his life. That's a strange concept, but he's talking about it. In fact, the song we were singing just before I stood up was expressing that. We're in his life. He rose, we rose with him. So it says, for example, in chapter 6, verse 5, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. We're in his resurrection life. Now, pause and think, the quality of that life. It's eternal, but it's miraculous because it's defying nature. It's impossible, and it's happened. And it means we have come from unbelief, not just now to believing and admiring, but we've stepped forward into something that is supernatural, totally miraculous, defies explanation, and we're in that forever. Now let me ask you, have you stepped forward from here? Now hopefully you've stepped forward from here. And you say, I do believe. I believe that Jesus died and rose again from me. You're saved. But have you realized, Paul's saying, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, that you will see what we've come into. This power which is for us who believe. It's a step forward from admiring and worshipping. Yes, let's admire and worship. But to experience and say, now I live within the supernatural. Now I live within the miraculous. Because Jesus is alive. Jesus said, greater works than these will you do because I'm going to the Father. The resurrection of Jesus releases people into that life. That's why Paul is so anxious that his friends should see it. Because how tragic if we simply admire, if we simply worship for what we should actually be in. But we're not in it. We just admire it. And maybe we only admire it because we haven't really got hold of, I am justified. I am reconciled. There is no guilt. There is no gap. I'm not excluded. I have come into Christ. It's because of being identified with him that my sin is taken away. He identified with me on the cross. He died. I therefore died in my substitute. My my sin is dealt with for all time. He's laid in the grave. He rose again. I'm alive in him. And his life is now my life. Paul is so anxious that people should get hold of that. That we're in Christ. And Christ is in heaven. And he's at the right hand of the Father. Far above all principality and power and every name that can be named. Therefore, 
When we face impossibilities, do we look up at impossibilities and we say, I can't really believe for that, that is big. Or do we say, I'm in Christ, that's impossible. We look down on it. And so is resurrection and I'm in the risen Savior and therefore the impossible shall happen. There is nothing such, no, no such thing as impossible with God. And we're in Christ. Yes, of course, we'll still face problems. And problems sometimes will overcome us and disappoint us. And we know what it is to, to, to cope with disappointment. But we're also not crushed by it. We're not undermined by it. Because we have a risen Savior and we're in Him. And we know we'll be with Him forever. If only you could see what I see. Tell you what I mean by that. I see a sea of blank faces staring back at me while I am saying some quite amazing things. I'm so glad you can't see what I can see because you might get depressed. We're in Christ. I see some people smiling now. That is good. In some churches, people actually permit the occasional grunt or even a muttered amen, or, you know, don't, nothing too exuberant, don't get overexcited. <laughs> We're in the Savior who is raised from the dead, and his life is now the sphere within which we live. Therefore, well, there are so many therefores. There are so many things that follow on from this. Paul is speaking about this how much more factor. If Christ is risen, which he is. If he's ascended, which he is, he's seated at the Father's right hand, and there he is forever, then if we're in him, there is a sense in which we are already living in our future, because that's where we're going to be. And in Christ, something of the future impacts our lives now. It means, well, as Paul is going to go on to say in chapter 6, we deal with sin. We don't live with failure all our lives, saying, I can't overcome that. I can't deal with that. I've, I've always had a weakness in that area. No, 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 no. He says, we don't go on sinning. Don't you realize? He says, we died with him, we were raised with him. We've got a new life. We certainly deal with sin. Those temptations that we, we think are too strong, they've got to see our position. We, we can't continue in that. Paul is just saying in chapter 6, it's impossible. We can't continue in it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body, he says. You, you died, you're raised. We deal with it. But it also brings us into the supernatural in so many other areas. Why did Paul go around preaching a gospel of the kingdom and seeing people healed, miracles happening? Well, because he believes he's in the resurrection life of Christ. Anything is possible if we're in him, but we're in relationship with him. We're not just believing for miracles, we're walking with God. We're in relationship. There is no gap. We're as close to him as it's possible to be. There is no guilt to disqualify us. And so we hear what he's saying. And we know when he says, see that person healed. We, we see that person healed. We're listening to God and we're moving in relationship with him. And anything can happen if we're in a savior who had been killed on a cross, have a spear thrust into his side, bound up in grave clothes, put in a tomb, stone rolled across the door, the stone sealed, and a Roman guard put outside, and he's out of the grave, 
leaving the grave clothes where they were and is wonderfully alive. If, if he can do that, is there anything that he can't do? And we're in him. We're in him. How much more shall we be saved in his life? We've got relationship. We've got resurrection life. And therefore, the third thing follows in verse 11. Not only is this so, we also rejoice in God. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God, a God-centered joy. And this word rejoice is the word we saw earlier uh, in this uh, chapter um, in verse three, uh, verses 2 and 3. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and so on. We rejoice in our sufferings. This is this word exalting, boasting, glorying. We've got a wonderful Savior, a wonderful God, and we exalt in him. We boast in God. It's not just happy clappy. It's God-centered worship. He's wonderful. And we rejoice in him through our Lord. And who is our Lord? He is Jesus Christ through whom we've received reconciliation. Hey, that's worth rejoicing in. We have come into something unbelievably wonderful. This how much more factor? The impossible happened. So how much more will all of these other things? So we need to see that our present existence isn't a kind of long interlude between the past and the future. We're not just kicking our heels, having been saved, waiting for then. We are in Christ now. Christ is alive. He is active. He is powerful. He is supreme. And so we glory in him. The believing response to all of that is to say, yes, we will rejoice in him. We will exalt in him. But we'll also experience this and we're going to explore more and more of what does this mean. We're not going to take just one step forward and admire. We're going to take another step forward and say, I'm in this. I am in this. I'm believing this. I'm going to experience it by grace and I'm going to explore it and exploit it to the limit of my ability to see what does it mean? That Jesus is far above all principality and power. What does that mean for the people I meet? What does that meet, mean for where I work? What does it mean for the university and so on? Whatever we're involved in, what does it mean that I am in Christ and when people meet me, they are meeting someone who is in the risen Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean for them? What does it mean for me? I'm going to explore this. Is that your response? That's the believing response. Say, yeah, I see it. I see it. If those things happened, then how much more must these? It's logical. There's a therefore. We believe the one. We must believe the other. And not just stop and say, yes, I admire it. But to say, I'm in it, that's too good to be true. No, it's too good not to be true. It's the how much more factor of our wonderful God. Let's pray.